Welcome, welcome to another edition of the Cool Stuff Ride Home podcast. Marcus Paff and Reggie Razoo here, of course, bringing you some of the more interesting stories of the day. On today's episode, the remarkable recovery of California's redwood trees. Great news there. The hotel moved with a remarkable, I'll repeat that word, amount of soap. And the Doogie Hauser of Lawyers. If you don't get that reference, look it up. That plus this day in history coming up on Cool Stuff Ride Home. Well, for better or worse, most of us have grown accustomed to the volatile climate trends in recent years. Droughts, floods, and wildfires have become all too common throughout the country. And yet, here's a bit of good news through all the distressing headlines. The massive redwood trees in California's Big Basin Redwoods State Park are recovering remarkably well from the wildfire damage sustained back in 2020. Per the Santa Cruz Sentinel, the park's famed redwoods, which in some cases grow to heights in excess of 250 feet and date back more than 1,500 years are nearly all green again, showing significant amounts of new growth after the wildfire's flames charred their bark black and made them appear all but dead again back in 2020. Now, biologist Drew Peltier of the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, has studied Big Basin's post-fire recovery and recently stated, quote, Coast Redwoods are just supremely fire adapted and were well prepared for this fire event, and they seem to be recovering, at least so far, end quote. At a symposium hosted in mid-November of 2023 by the nonprofit Santa Cruz Mountains Bioregional Council, Peltier explained how eight months after the fire, he and other researchers from Northern Arizona University set up a camera high in a redwood tree about one mile from park headquarters to automatically take photos every day. Now, the first photo he showed was from April of 2021 and revealed a forest dominated by brown burned redwood trees. The next photo, however, taken this past June, showed the same forest covered in lush green with thick regrowth after just two years. Says Peltier again, quote, what we saw was pretty remarkable. All these trees are brown. They have no green foliage. And two years later, they are fully leafed out. I pulled the image from today and I almost didn't recognize it. The trees are so bushy now, end quote. You may or may not recall that the fire started August 16th, 2020, as a result of a lightning strike. It would go on to burn more than 86,000 acres in rural Santa Cruz and the San Mateo counties, including 97% of the 18,000 acres that make up Big Basin. For comparison's sake, the destruction reached an area nearly three times the size of the city of San Francisco, Wow! while simultaneously bringing down nearly 1,500 structures. That makes it the most destructive fire in the recorded history of the Santa Cruz Mountains. A John Keeley, a senior scientist at the U.S. Geological Survey and biology professor at UCLA, says, quote, Ecologically, the park is doing just fine. The forest is coming back the way it is adapted to. About 90% of the redwood trees are re-sprouting, end quote. That said... While the forest is bouncing back nicely, we'd be remiss to not mention that other wildlife species, particularly salmon and steelhead trout in the park streams, and certain types of birds, well, they're all still struggling and could take many years to bounce back. So we can't paint a completely rosy picture in this case. Still, the fact authorities have reopened the park, albeit in a restricted manner, can only be considered a good sign. 
Visitors are urged to secure day-use reservations due to limited parking availability, at least at this point, and camping is still not permitted for the moment. But four miles of trails and 18 miles of fire roads are now accessible for hiking and mountain biking. Additionally, the park's Welcome Center reopened in November. In an effort to revitalize the park, state officials have engaged in public meetings and focus groups to formulate plans. Their vision involves relocating certain structures, camping facilities, and park away from the delicate old growth redwoods in the former headquarters area. Once again, thanks to the Santa Cruz Sentinels report for much of the information that we gleaned in this story. So Reggie, I think this is more than anything, just a, a, a feel good of sorts because we see the redwoods bounce back and we learn something about them as well in, in that they are wholly prepared for this type of event, it would seem. Yeah, that's actually one of the places too. My daughter, who's nine, uh, we asked her, like, so where do you want to go sometimes? She, one of the first things she says is she wants to see the Redwoods. So I don't want them to go away. And after she said that, I looked up some I- interesting facts about them. And, and uh, you can see like the tunnels you can drive through on some of them, but obviously that's not allowed anymore to create those tunnels. But the Redwoods are absolutely amazing. And I would love to see them at some point in my life too. Yeah, absolutely a marvel. So no doubt, good to hear that they are doing well once again. Moving large objects of any kind can quickly become a nightmare without the proper equipment. I've learned that firsthand when attempting to transport furniture in the past, as I'm sure a lot of others have as well when changing homes. But what about moving a building? Not that we haven't seen that before. The Indiana Bell Building was one of the first in the world to be displaced rather than demolished. Other examples include the Schubert Theater in Minneapolis, the Bell Lighthouse in Sussex, England, and the Empire Theater in New York. But none of these moves took place on the backs of a bar of soap, or in this case, hundreds of bars of soap. A former home turned hotel in Halifax, Nova Scotia, was successfully pulled 30 feet by a construction crew across a steel frame by two excavators and a tow truck. But instead of using rollers, the team decided to go with 700 bars of ivory soap to make the Elmwood building glide across the frame. Construction company owner Sheldon Rushton said ivory soap is particularly soft, making for a smooth move. The Elmwood dates back to 1826, while the structure there today was mostly built in 1896. Either way, pretty old, when it was converted to a Victorian hotel in the latter year. The building was at risk of demolition in recent years, but was saved by a new ownership group. It is stagnant, or rather is stagnant for now, but will be moved again in the near future once its new foundation is completed. And while that's pretty darn cool in its own right, you heard me mention the Indiana Bell Building earlier. If you've never heard this story, it's also pretty fascinating. In 1930, a team of engineers and architects moved the 11-ton building 52 feet south while rotating it simultaneously 90 degrees before moving it another 100 feet west. This all occurred over approximately 30 days and with no disruptions to Indiana's telephone service, which was headquartered in that very building, nor the supply of gas, water, and electricity to said building. You can actually look up a time-lapse video of this taking place, which is pretty wild considering it happened almost 100 years ago. We'll link that in the show notes. And if you're wondering why this move was made, well, the building was originally slated to be demolished in order to make way for a new structure on the site, but that would have caused telephone service disruptions. Can't have that. So Kurt Vonnegut Sr., the architect of the new building, suggested moving it to the adjacent lot. The new headquarters was then completed in 1932 at 7 Store 
stories tall before expansion in the 1940s and again in the 60s brought the building to its current height of 22 stories, which still stands to this day in downtown Indianapolis. Unfortunately, the original building, the one that was moved that we're talking about here, that was destroyed in 1963. So, Reggie, not something that is uncommon well no uh, you know what frankly it is pretty uncommon but it's not unheard of shall we say but the fact that the the building we talked about in nova scotia was done with soap now that's a forward-thinking guy forward-thinking construction crew because i don't know that no matter how much i knew about this subject matter i would have ever considered throwing a building on a bar of soap well i have to say it's probably a pretty clean move Rim shot. <laughs> I'll, I'll see myself out. <laughs> yes, please do. Please do. Get out of here with that. Well, you don't have to remind me that there are plenty of people smarter than myself in this world, but sometimes a story comes along that does just that. In California, 17-year-old Peter Park, no, not Peter Parker, recently passed the state's bar exam before being sworn in by the district attorney of Tolaire County. The California State Bar told the Associated Press on Friday that it could not confirm Park is the youngest to achieve this feat, but the AP's report suggests that is, in fact, the case. Executive Director Leah Wilson told the AP, quote, passing the California bar exam is a major accomplishment at any age, and for someone as young as Mr. Park, it is quite an extraordinary feat and one worth celebrating, end quote. Park took the exam back in July and finally received the test results on November 9th, according to a news release issued by the district attorney's office last week. But this isn't just some one-off achievement for him, as I'm sure you probably guessed. He started high school back in 2019 at age 13 and simultaneously began a four-year Juris Doctor program at the Northwestern California University School of Law, the latter after completing college-level proficiency exams per the DA's office. In 2021, he graduated high school after taking California's high school proficiency exam and focused on law school, graduating, of course, this year. He became a law clerk for the district attorney's office in August, turned 18 in late November, and was sworn in as an attorney last week. At this rate, he'll be a judge by age 20 and split the atoms sometime around age 24. Uh, that's a joke, just to be clear. But kudos to Mr. Park, because that is one intelligent young man. So I found myself asking this question, Reggie, who from history compares to Mr. Park and this accomplishment? Well, the former king of Macedon, Alexander the Great, began conquering countries at the age of 18. He never lost a battle, but died at the ripe old age of 32 due to a fever. That's rough. The first emperor of Rome, Augustus Caesar, who happened to be Julius Caesar's 19 year old grandnephew, adopted son, and heir, became a Roman senator at age 20. Joan of Arc, a teenage peasant from France, convinced her country's leadership to give her a commanding role in the army during the Hundred Years' War with England. Per History.com, she was 17 years old when she chopped off her hair, donned men's clothes, and rode off to battle. Nine days after she arrived at the besieged city of Orleans, Joan beat back the English forces and became a national hero. Fortunately, she was eventually captured, given a sham trial, and burned at the stake by the English at age 19. The charges were later debunked, and she was declared a martyr several decades later. Centuries later, Joan of Arc was canonized as a saint in 1920. Well, Mozart, just running through the list here, Mozart wrote his first symphony at age 8 with the help of his father. I'd say that's pretty good. Mary Shelley published her timeless novel Frankenstein at age 20. Thanks to Business Insider for some of the facts on this short 
short list. I'll place a link to their story in the show notes as there are a number of other extraordinary folks throughout history to accomplish incredible things at a young age. So Reggie, I'll go back to Mr. Park at age 17. What exactly were you doing at that time? We love to do this when we see people who do great things at at a young age. Pretty much the same thing I'm doing now. Nothing, watching TV, playing video <laughs> games. Some Someday I'm going to accomplish something in my life, but, you know, I'm taking my time. Yeah, I get it. I, I mean, I'm looking at how big of a dope I was at that time. That's <laughs> incredible to, to see and hear some of these things that have been accomplished by such young people uh, in the past, in, in addition to what Peter Park did in California. But it, it's just wild to me to think a teenager because he's 18 at this point, still a teenager, could be representing me in a trial of some kind. I mean, I guess I don't know specifically what type of law he's expected to practice, but it's yeah. just all really unbelievable. Well, that's where, yeah, there's different kind of uh, kind of law. I mean, does he want to be a trial attorney? So it, it really depends on what kind of law he wants to be. And, you know, for all we know, he may have just wanted to pass the bar and do this and then move on to something else, too. I mean, when you're that smart, kind of, you know, the world is your oyster. You can do what you want, I think. You're saying he's going to he's going to be a doctor here in another couple of years. I mean, certainly he's got the intelligence to accomplish that. Doctor, lawyer, astronaut. What what do you want to be, kid? (laughs) Peter Park will be in space by age 30. This kid's the real deal. Taking a look at this day in history in 1963, Frank Sinatra Jr. was returned home by his kidnappers after his father paid $240,000 in the ransom they demanded. What's interesting about that is he was gone for two days. The kidnappers actually knocked on his door. He was staying at the Harris Lake Tahoe room 417. They knocked on his door pretending to be room service when they kidnapped him. And uh, Frank Sinatra actually offered them $1 million, but they only wanted the 240000 which, by the way, is equivalent to about two point. 2 million, a little over 2.2 million uh, right now. If they would have taken that $1 million, that's about 9.7 million in today's money. So I I don't know why they didn't take the full million. Uh, They never really said, but uh, Barry Keenan, Johnny Irwin, and Joe Amsler were captured soon after giving the ransom and prosecuted, convicted, and sentenced to long prison terms. They only ended up serving a small amount of time for their prison, though. What's interesting, though, is if you ever heard Frank Sinatra uh, Sr. was buried with 10 dimes in his pocket. That has to do with this kidnapping. They wanted all communication done by payphone, and Frank Sr. was worried he wasn't going to have enough coins. So he always carried 10 dimes with him just in case, you know, he wanted to be able to get to the payphone, make that call, not run out of time. So for the rest of his life, he carried 10 dimes in his pocket. And like I said, was buried with 10 dimes in his pocket. That's pretty wild, Reggie. I didn't know that. Fun fact of the day for me. So thanks for sharing that. Yeah, that, that of course, the big question coming away from this, and maybe someone knows the answer. Of course, you can email us that answer at coolstuffcommunitygmail.com. Because right now, why on earth? This is what we're wondering. Why wouldn't you accept the $1 million that was offered to you? The only thing that I could think of is that does it somehow make it a worse crime if you're to be captured for a higher ransom, Reggie? But that, that still was seems my unlikely. Yeah, they, they still end up getting large prison terms. I mean, obviously, as I mentioned, they end up serving only a, a portion of that prison time. But that was my only thought is they had it like at 240000 maybe like two fifty or something at that time was considered more of a, a serious crime. So maybe they wanted to keep it under that level. Maybe that's why he offered the million to make it more of a serious crime, too. I don't know. Again, if somebody else knows the answers to those questions, 
on the, the law at that time. Uh, feel free to let us know. But that's the only thing I can think of why you wouldn't take the larger sum of money. Yeah, that's pretty wild. I mean, Sinatra is associated with Vegas. So the other thing that came to my mind is maybe these guys were in bad with a bookie of sorts. And hey, all we need is 240K to get this all square again. We don't want to be messing around with any more money than that. Just got to be able to uh, wipe the debt off the books. Now, that's sort of a joke, but pretty, pretty wild how this ultimately worked out. And, uh, and, you know, all's well that ends well, I suppose, as Frank Sinatra Jr. recovered. That'll wrap up another edition of Cool Stuff Ride Home. Again, if you have the answers for us for any of the questions or comments or anything, coolstuffcommute at gmail.com is a great way to get a hold of us. Feel free to leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts or any other platform. Otherwise, I'm Reggie Rizzo. He's Marcus Path. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.